And good morning. It is not only is it Wednesday, it's the earlier day. It is definitely the earlier, earlier time uh, of 8.15 a.m. Pacific time and 10.15 where our guest is today. Good morning, David. How are you? Doing well. It's, it's noon over here, so. Uh, yeah, all right. You've been right. for a while. You've had your breakfast. You've had your coffee. I get it. You don't need to brag. It's all good, though. We wouldn't have it any other way because uh, our guest today is a, is a very special one, and we're very excited to welcome him uh, to Daring Live today. Um, he is founding member of Grammy Award-winning group Old Crow Medicine Show, who, uh, if you happened to be in London last week at the O2 Arena, looked like you guys were having a fantastic time. So that was... Uh, that was some footage that he put up on his Instagram, and it looked incredible. So uh, he's a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, his first instrument, I believe, was a banjo, but he's also a fantastic fiddler, harmonica player, as well as many other different instruments as well. He has a hugely deep understanding of American folk, country music, and old-time music. And if you have ever had the good fortune of seeing him live, you will know that he is one heck of an entertainer, uh, as is the entire band. Um, he's also very much in demand, and so this is why we've... Uh, Position this a little earlier than normal, but let's bring him in, Mr. Ketch. Say, like, oh, Ketch, come on. In. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning, Ketch. How are hey, you? Uh, I'm doing great. I, I'm uh, so glad you asked me to uh, rise and shine with you and uh, talk about banjos <laughs> and whatever else we get into. Absolutely. Well, we've got. A, I know we've got um, uh, a little bit of time with you this morning, so we're going to jump right in. And um, I want to hear what that banjo sounds like. So, do you want to jam us in with a little uh, little tune to wake everybody up? Sure. This is the first one I ever learned to play. I was 15 years old, and and I learned Juliana Johnson. tune first tune that you learned huh yeah yeah i learned that one when i was a kid and and i was hooked man i was i needed to learn 12 more before i'd be satisfied and banjo was your first instrument that you really you know spent no, time I'm, with i'm originally a jews harp player gotcha i started okay. with that instrument when i was probably about uh 10 and then like dominoes the instruments of folk music began to fall in my family. right right <laughs> what what and after you picked up the banjo what kind of uh drew you into the sound and made want you explore even more deeper into uh you know this you know old-time music and folk music well i think for me having a sort of a, a, an upbringing surrounded by these folk music heroes uh really helped uh, which was kind of odd given i was 
you know, raised up in the the time I was in which there weren't really any great folk music stars of the late 1980s and early 90s. It's not the folk era, right. um, but right, right. Um, but I had mom and dad's record collection and my uncles and and I thought that the most important thing that had ever happened uh, it was the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement. So for me, the music had this echoing effect of the folk revival. It just seemed so important that these things had recently happened or like the you know the the atom bomb these things felt so still significant like i could feel their hum and the music that talked about them was not on the radio it wasn't contemporary right. uh and so the music that i you know gravitated towards was the music that discussed these things that felt so um elemental to being alive in the time that I was raised in. And, and that was Pete Seeger primarily. Um, and, and then when I was about 12, I went to my first Bob Dylan show and, uh, probably the, the seeds of my, my banjo, um, uh, uh, lifestyle were sown that day. And, uh, when I was 12 at that show. Okay. Did, did you ever spend time? I had a similar experience where, you know, kind of similar age about, so I think it was a similar experience of kind of getting, digging into that era of folk music in the eighties and early nineties. And, uh, but, uh, did you ever go, go learn a bunch of Dylan tunes on banjo before you kind of, you know, as you're starting out, that's what kind of I did. I did learn a lot of those, those folk tunes on banjo. Cause I wasn't around a bluegrass community. Totally. Like I used to do Williams and Zinger killed poor Hattie Carroll. With a cane that it twirled round his diamond ring finger In a Baltimore hotel society gathering And the cops were brought in You know, and, and uh, when, yeah. when you get invited to that table that, that Bob Dylan set for you at the Zanzinger estate outside of Baltimore, <laughs> um, there's just something that, uh, for me, Bob was the, kind of the signpost that said, the groovy shit is this way. <laughs> and, uh, and I just kept listening to the the influences of Bob. That that was enough for me to kind of. That was the Rosetta Stone. Even though Bob's not a right. banjo player, I wouldn't be a yeah. banjo player if it wasn't for Dylan. Right, right. I hear you totally. And uh, staying on the Bob Dylan track, I mean, you've had experiences working, obviously, with you know, you know, finishing the Wagon Wheel, his song Wagon Wheel, and then I believe he's also he also had you finish another song you've you've worked with them in, in in another respect some another manner somehow yeah um uh, there's rock me mama that got uh turned into wagon wheel and then um and then we turned an, another song fragment of his into a song called sweet amarillo that was on a, a record we put out about eight or nine years ago um but uh we've not met and uh and that's all right you know they say sure. not to meet your heroes and we met uh, <laughs> I've met a few, and I see why they say that. <laughs> but it must be how it must be rewarding to because you mentioned he's like the Rosetta Stone for for your musical journey at this age, and then to be able to work with you know some of the, the work with you know mold some of the clay figures that he's he started into something. It, I was listening, you know, I was probably about 15 and I was, I was living in New Hampshire. I was, I was going to high school and I was, I was at a, yeah. at a preparatory high school. So I was living away from home and enrolled in school in a dormitory. And uh, yeah. I, I was on the Bob deep dive to the point where I had gone through all the records. And now I was on to like the, uh, 
the the other packages outside of the album. So I, I was listening to Greatest Hits Volume 2, um, and I heard Happy Traum begin. Clouds so swift, the rain falling in. Gonna see a movie called Gunga Din. And when I heard Happy Traum playing the banjo on You Ain't Going Nowhere, I thought, the banjo? That might be a good right. instrument for me because I could play the guitar and I was into the piano mm-hmm. and I could play the tin whistle. Uh, and and so I thought, well, I better find me a banjo teacher to show me how to do it because I hear the banjo's hard and you got to get those thumb picks on and the you know get your fingers all full of jewelry. Well, um, I uh, I had to petition the school to get a banjo teacher and it involved a sort of an academic affairs council. So if you can imagine what it's like in a stodgy New England boarding school to be the southern kid on a scholarship who you know brings all these old stuffs together and says, I'd like to, there to be a banjo program please, at <laughs> Phillips Exeter Academy for the first time. Well, they approved my, and, and ratified this thing with a big wax seal. And all of a sudden there was a banjo teacher on staff at Phillips Exeter. Wow. But he, he didn't play like Happy Traum. He didn't play uh. with finger picks at all. They hired a claw hammer player named Ryan Thompson from the New Hampshire seacoast. And that was my real fork in the road because I didn't learn bluegrass. I learned old time music. And, and what was, what kept you drive diving deeper into this uh, about the scene of old time music that you really, as you progressed even later that you really loved because the, the scenes were very separate. The bluegrass and old time scenes were kind of two distinct things. They've kind of merged a little more in recent years, but, uh, what was it about the whole scene of old time music back then that but really, you know, really spoke to you? Well, I was probably on the on the hippie side of the spectrum, you know, in high school. And if I wasn't at, at a square dance or a contra dance, I was probably at a fish show or a dead show or a Dylan show. Um, right. And, uh, you know, I didn't own any Ralph Stanley records, but I had I was I was super into Charlie Poole. And I love the skillet liquors, and I thought that, uh, you know, Gribble, Martin, Lusk, and York was pretty groovy, and I, and I loved, you know, French Carpenter, and I was listening to tons of Tommy Jarrell, and um, the, the old-time music scene was a place where you could still be kind of a freak and fit in, you know, even though we were all playing, you know, traditional music of the South that was from the 19th century and further back, even though we were all participating in this in this remnant folk culture, we were doing it in a in a manner that felt a lot more like, um, you know, like a like a Grateful Dead parking lot scene, and uh, right, right. and the alternative to it was the bluegrass scene, which was at least at that time, you know, it was really centered on RV lifestyle. You know, there was a you know a crock pot of beans going. But, you know, I could get like a soy tempeh Reuben over on the other side of the aisle. Which was, <laughs> I was just more into that. Um, but I, I loved, you know, I, I, at the same time, the duality was important because, you know, this was the key and it didn't matter how you played it. You know, yeah. you could play a banjo. You could impress them if they were stodgy old bluegrass types or if they were, you know, uppity, you know, uh, beardy New York banjo snobs. It, it didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't, I mean, that, that, you know, that side of it was just as hard to identify with too. It's like they both had their extremes. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I want to talk about, uh, you know, 
um, Doc Watson a little bit, another person who, you know, could bounce both lines of the old time and bluegrass scene and was major, I know was a major, um, had a major effect on you and Old Crow's um, beginning and because it was recently Doc's 100th birthday. I'd like to touch on, you know, what was his influence on you, you know, before before that that meeting at in Boone that that's been written about and uh, and then also after you know in the years past. Well, when I was a kid, it was hard to find um, claw hammer players on record. You know, like I could get um, reissues of Kyle Creed field recordings, and I did at about seventeen. And you, you know, my my family was like, "What is catch into these esoteric claw hammer players?" And like, what, what, it, what, what is it to know that much about Wade Ward when you're, you know, when it's 1995? It's like Pepsi at Woodstock, y'all. Well, get with the program, kid. You know, you're supposed to like the Chili Peppers, brah. And like Soundgarden. I mean, and all that stuff was fine, too. But um, um, anyway, it was hard to find Clawhammer players on record. Um, mm-hmm. but, but then I heard Merle Watson and Merle was such a wonderful clawhammer player. Y'all right. like, I, you know, the technique of what doc, doc, doc's flat picking technique, although mystifying and, and entrancing, I loved, I didn't play like that and couldn't, that wasn't right. going to be my thing. Um, but when I heard him play with Merle and Merle was on the banjo, it was like, ah, that's what I'm looking for. And so me and my partner, Critter Fuquay, who I started Old Crow with, Critter could play like Doc. He could do those things. He was a he was a sophisticated guitar player, and I could play the claw hammer. And together we had a duo that could play in any coffee shop uh, uh, and that would have us, and and then street corners, and and that's really where the 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 through line for for Doc Watson takes place because Doc was a busker on the streets of mm-hmm. Boone, which was the nearby college town where, where he could, he could rock out, um, and make some dough. Um, and 50 years later, we were on the same streets where doc used to busk and we were busking when doc came and threw a dollar in our hat back in the spring, summer of, uh, 1999 and, uh, and changed our lives forever. Yeah. Yeah. And did you keep a relationship with him through the years? Yeah, uh, we had the privilege of um, knowing Doc, and especially uh, Nancy, his daughter, uh, who was a, just a wonderful person, um, and really a, the flag bearer for the Watson family in the in the high country in North Carolina. Uh, we we spent time with Rosalie Watson, um, who was um, you know Doc's wa- lovely wife, and we'd go to their home and. And then we met him too in the professional scape. Like we would open for him. I remember we we opened up right. for Doc uh, up and down the East Coast and did a bunch of shows together. But it was never like it was never like that first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned you know how Doc was a busker and and y'all were buskers and you know a lot of bands. I know the Kruger Brothers were bu- started out busking. What do you think that taught you to be? Um, to be a good entertainer? How did busking really form who you are as an entertainer? You know, I, I think that busking is probably the, you know, there was the, the Dylan piece, the old time music piece, and then the busking piece. 
those were the, the, the three contributing factors that allowed my band to be now a 25 year old band. Uh, and to have, you know, uh, and to be able to rock out in front of a whole lot of people and have, and have something of a, of a legacy in the space of, um, you know, Americana or roots music, whatever you want to call it. The buskin part of it was elemental to our formation. Uh, and before old crow, it was what I did. I was 15, 16. The first time I ever played on a street corner, um, I did it in Chicago. I had, a um, I was heading out West to work on a a commune and live in a yurt and um and i set out the hat i blew harmonica through a harp rack and sang um you know old folk songs and and made money the thing about that it was that enterprising entrepreneurial feeling of i don't need a job all i need is to open my case uh right. now then it turned out i had to do a lot of jobs i had to work all kinds of odd jobs but that case opening that was always mm -hmm. the um, that was always the fallback position, and when I came to Nashville, it was to busk. You know, I came here in 1996 for the first time to play uh, in an old time string band out of Greensboro, North Carolina, a few years before my band Old Crow started, and I just knew it, Nashville was a $500 town. You know, in that you can make $500 a day on a street corner. And I went, uh -huh. I went as a, my, my dream as a teenager, late teenager was to find the other $500 towns on this continent. And I found them all. And I, and I could just, busking was like, it was just like finding a wellspring and filling your jug. If you found a sweet spot, like I did in Ottawa, like I did in Winnipeg, like I did in New Orleans, uh, like I did in Portland on the Burnside bridge. Um, if you could find the, the right place and the and the the real key to being a great busker was like when Doc used to go busk in Boone, he had to play by this wall outlet because he was an electric guitar player. You know, Merle Merle Watson wasn't was named for the granddaddy of pickers the, who plugged in Merle Travis. You know, this was mm -hmm. Doc was a hillbilly rockabilly Hellcat man. Yeah. You know, he he turned folk because he realized that he could make a living doing that. But I think his heart was always in rock and roll. Uh, and I <laughs> yeah. was the other way around. My heart was always in traditional music, but I but I looked like a hillbilly greaser hellcat. Anyway, so the 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 real key was being able to do it unplugged. If you could do it unplugged, right. then you could travel light. You could play anywhere, right. and you could be in. Portland under that bridge with a crowd, and the next night you were at Pike's Market in Seattle making that five hundo. It was pretty sweet. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, you mentioned how uh, New Orleans was spent was one of those was one of those good busking towns, and uh, I'm from New Orleans, and uh, and so I'm I'm curious what the influence. And I know you lived in New Orleans as a, as a young child too, and uh, what the if the influence of New Orleans culture. Um, ever soaked into in, into your into your music at all you know it's a different style of music you know string band music isn't real prevalent in that city but there you know you, you'll have old crows you know featured it on an on an on an ep cover and done a video there and and uh so i know there's some influence oh very much so um the the i remember i, I moved to new orleans i learned to walk in new orleans i learned to talk yeah. and i learned to sing in new orleans i learned those things because i moved to new orleans when i was two years old and my first memories of life are in that city. Uh, and then I didn't go back. Uh, we moved away. It was Missouri and a bunch of other places. 
I finally went back to New Orleans, Louisiana when I was 18, and it was so amazing what it unlocked in me. It was such a, um, such a um, you know, structural feeling of aesthetic. It's like, oh, that smell, it, you know, it was like getting back in the womb, you know, it was that kind of feeling. Yeah. I just felt like a kid again, and it's such a sensory explosion. So every time I go back to New Orleans, I feel that same way, this kind of sensory takeover. Um, you know, I, I loved um, the jazz banjo playing. You know, I, I love those chop chords and the, on the tenor and, uh, and marching bands. Um, we, ha we have a song on our new album that's coming out this summer that explores... Um, that um, that crossroads between string band music and the New Orleans jazz band, and uh, yeah. I'm really excited about that tune. What's the tune called? So I it's, can keep an eye out for it. It's called "The Shit Kicked In." It's sort of a, <laughs> uh, it's kind of a um, you know Chapatula's acid trip uh, with a. <laughs> I'm excited to hear it. <laughs> Well, I want to get to one thing before also, because we have a hard stop in, in a few minutes, but um, I want to jump about, um, talk about, um, you know, you're still a young musician, but then there's another generation coming up and what, and you've had a lot of influence on some, on bands coming up. I think there's a band I met last year, Streetlight Cadence, who the, there's a fiddle player that really as reminds me of you in a lot of ways and a lot of, you know, the energy puts forth, but what, how do you see yourself as a role model for up role model for up and coming musicians and just educating younger people about music in general? Well, when I was a kid, I, I struggled, as I mentioned, to find people that looked like me in, in the scene, you know, I felt like the only uh, weirdo, um, playing old-time music. I mean, there was enough weirdos, but they were a lot older than me. Um, they were from, you know, the 70s. And, and, and so there seems like the, the music is in a constant cycle of renewal um, because it's a traditional music form. And I, and I would um, venture to guess that traditional musics around the world have that same cyclic nature in which, um, you know, because it's part of, our, of, a, of a culture and it's part of a, a familiarity. It's part of kinship and, and it's part of region. Um, so anyway, I guess uh, I hope to impart on a younger generation that, um, that the music that, uh, that we make, that, that the torch that I can pass to others would be one that is not a museum piece or relic but rather a, um, you know, a fire to burn yourself and others with. You know, there's something about, like, it's supposed to hurt a little bit. They make these uh -huh. things white so that when you bleed on them, it shows. That, that, I mean, that's kind of mentioning the hurt. That goes into another question about how, like, you're, you have your live performances, you skirt on that danger level, which I really like in, in live music, where you're, um, you can, if I articulate this well, you know, where it's almost, almost out of control, but you're right on the cliff of like, of a falling off, but it's always balanced back. So there's always something exciting and you've kept that going through the years. Um, how do you keep that energy and that, 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 you know, that danger element in, in, in music, especially when you're playing some tunes that you play a lot, you know, through the years. Well, some, something about the technique I think has has something to do with why, like, you know, I play a lot of fiddle. 
And, and when you play the fiddle, you're basically, your body is a bellows. You know, mm -hmm. you're constantly providing the, the spirit and air and, and sustaining life of the music. Um, so much of, of, uh, of old time music is, is performative just in how you play it. You know, like the rake on the banjo, you know, you know you're doing all the... <laughs> and not only that, like, it's a drum. You know, it's supposed to be abused. You know, you're supposed to hit yeah. it. And yeah, I can't you get tell you how... Like, if you want your guitar to look like Trigger by the end of your life, you can't be precious about this shit, y'all. And I, I think we can agree that we want our guitars to look like Trigger. Not to look like they're hanging up in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> so if, <laughs> right. if I can encourage anybody to, to it, it this is a this is a fiery music, you know. It's it. I mean, and I, I like it. I like it. You know, I was listening to the 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 intro. Um, I like it to sound like a Cottonelle commercial too, because I like ukulele, and I think Puffs Plus aren't going to irritate my nose. Um, I think that there's a role for banjos in all kinds of things. They can sell cars. They can they can sell soap. Um, but when when I play it, I I just want it to be you know like a um, a summons to heaven or hell. You can decide. I I, I like my music to be um, you know my loyalty oath with the music. Like I I'm I'm not trying to sell records. I'm trying to sell banjos. We got to quote you on that right there. <laughs> um, yeah. So have you? Because you're. I mean, I can feel it right now. You're. 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 You know. You're. You're. You're teaching. You know, music in 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 the proper way. Have you had the chance to to produce any any um, younger bands or really have you know more more input on 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 their sound? Um, a little bit. Yeah. I, I really enjoy, um, uh, the production work that I've gotten to do, but it hasn't been a, a mainstay. Um, working uh -huh. with younger bands tends to be more of a, um, you know, my idea of working with a younger band means I hope we're in the same alley together. I can tell you, you know, tell you a couple stories, try and, um, there were so many inspiring figures to me and I realize that, you know, I always felt, y'all, like I was late to the party. Like I should have been yeah. born, you know, for the time in yeah. which the neutron bomb was, I was 14 when that happened. Not that happened, you know, 24 years after I was born or, or, or a little more than that. Um, mm -hmm. I always felt like I was supposed to be the kind of person that was at, you know, on the front lines at ground zero or even like... um you know, because I love the music of the 20s so much. I, I look at these guys who burned out in, you know, in a couple years' time, these characters who come from, you know, dirt farms and ride sleepy-eyed mules to the beat of a fiddle bow, and then they get on trains, they go to New York City, they make records, and then they drink themselves to death in a couple years, and it's over. You know, I have such envy for the those parts of the of the life of of country music makers, and so I always felt like I'm too late. Now I'm I'm living in the you know as I said before the Soundgarden era. You know I'm, I'm living. You know it's like Woods, Woodstock '50. You know sponsored by Aramco. It's just not as much fun anymore. And now you can't take any of the drugs because they're all poisoned. 
<laughs> that said, I, I've as I've you know approached the middle age of my life, I've realized that that I wasn't too late for the party, that the party needed a guy like me to arrive mm -hmm. a little late so that I can remind everybody else who's never even doesn't even know anybody who's at the party what the party right. was like. You know, how many instrumentalists today are growing up and they were born in 1990-something, and they're never, I mean, Merle Haggard is gone. They, they're not going to make nobody like that again. But, right. but I know Merle Haggard. I can, I can go there in my mind so that we're standing next to each other, and there might be an important cultural value, say, 50 years from now when I'm an old man, and somebody's like, well, what was Doc Watson like? Then they can come to me and I can say, well, this is what it was like. His ears were like satellite dishes. They were fucking right. huge. You never saw a bigger <laughs> pair of ears on a man. And this is what his breath was like. And this is what his whiskers were like. And this is what the birds were singing the times that I met him. Same with, you know, a number of people who don't walk the earth anymore. So I realize now I wasn't too late for the party. Um, somebody needed to pick up the crumbs and see what they could make out of them. Exactly. You're, you're the link to, to, to keeping it going. And, you know, I, I think about the link so much because I'm a devotee of Pete Seeger, uh, another person who 50 years from now, if anybody wants to know what Pete was like, they can come to me. They can be like, hey, man, you met Pete a few times. Tell us about it. Uh, and I'll be able to have that, that, that link. Pete always talked about the metaphor of the links in the chain. And, and to mm -hmm. me, this is what makes open back banjos and, and, and dobros and harmonicas and jugs and combs and bones. What makes it so um, primal is that we're all connected link by link through time, past the dropping of that bomb to the dropping of bombs previous, past all kinds of human suffering, past all kinds of great human migrations, to a kind of elemental humanity sitting there looking up at the sun, beating on the drum and saying whatever their version of hallelujah was. Preach. I mean, uh, do you have, do, do you have, do you have a, a family that's, that was a preacher in your past life? You, you have definitely have the preacher's DNA energy. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah. I thought about going up into the car salesman business, but I, the waxy buildup in my hair was too much. That too, maybe. Uh. It's infectious. I'll tell you that. It's uh, it's, it's definitely infectious, uh, to, especially. Yeah, it's just, it's wonderful to hear it. Sorry, I had to say that. No. Um. Let's see. The, the personnel in Old Crow has changed a lot through the years. How have you kind of? It's impressive you kept the band going. How have you kept it going? Even though it, it, you know, each incarnation has its own has its own sound, but still keeping it old crow and not just turn into a new band. Essentially, um, have you have you been able to keep that going? Well, you asked about how um, I relate to new newer generations, and the reason I think why I didn't produce a bunch of upstart string bands is because I was always bringing new blood into old crow, primarily a little bit younger than me. And that was the way that I have sort of um, passed the torch is by having a band that's always going. Um, but now we've got, uh, you know, our, our most recent band member, Mason Vi, is uh, probably 20 years younger than me. 
and from a you know old time music and bluegrass music scene that I couldn't have even predicted when I was a kid that that they were going to grow up thinking the banjo was cool. I thought I was the only one that was going to grow up thinking being a fiddler was you know better than Kurt Cobain. Um, right. So um, I guess one of the ways that uh, you know when when you have a uh, when you have a band like mine and it has a a, a clear sound you know and the the reason it has a clear sound is because what hasn't changed is is a whole lot of these and a whole lot of fiddles and and harmonicas those um these are really strong ingredients in any recipe mm-hmm. uh and i and i often think about you know um them being um kind of cost prohibitive like you can't really trade them in you can't trade up you know and and so we always skirted rock and roll just a little bit um, even on the street corner, when we were just playing jug band music, we were doing it like the Stones or or like Nirvana, you know, or the Ramones mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and so that attitude is sort of um, kind of regenerative. When you play old time yeah. music really fast and frenetically, it keeps you young, and it and it keeps um, it keeps it fun. You do play. Um, you, your old time style is, as you mentioned, you know, fast and 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 with tons of energy. Did you ever run into traditionalists like that saying you're playing you're playing it wrong, you're playing it too fast, you're playing it, you know, slow down, oh, yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, we were always my band was always too country for country here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. We were all way too damn country, uh, and and yet you'd go over to, to, we weren't a bluegrass band. And so we were, the bluegrassers were always mad at us. Cause we'd always have the number one bluegrass album in the country with our, <laughs> our folk music. And they were like, that's not, bluegrass. you know, and then the old time people were mad at us too, because we were a renegade old time band. Um, but, uh, you know, probably the most influential banjo player on me was a guy named, um, is a guy named Richie Stearns from Ithaca, New York. And, and Richie is the original renegade claw hammer banjo player. When I was 15, I'll never forget taking my electric guitar, taking a ball peen hammer and a file, knocking out all the frets on my guitar, driving a spike into the side of it, putting my fifth string in and turning my electric guitar into a banjo. And uh, it never sounded very good, but when I played <laughs> old hand with heavy distortion, you know, that was that's what I was after. I, I always wanted yeah. to screw up screw it up whatever scene we were in. We always wanted to be a wrecking ball. <laughs> um you mentioned Ithaca. That was um this comes up in a number of interviews. This, you know, uh, Richie Stern's being a big influence, and I know you went to Ithaca. You went to Ithaca University, right? A little bit. Yeah, for for a year, I went to Ithaca College, and that was a big area of influence. You know, it's been influenced this this town has uh, a lot of guests. If the Ithaca sound has has been a big influence, can you talk about why why you think Ithaca has this is this unique strength of old time music and such a big influence on a number of artists? Well, I grew up in Virginia, and by the time I uh, was about 16 or 17, I went to Elkins, uh, West Virginia, to the Davis and Elkins College's Augusta Heritage Center. Yeah. And and this yeah. was a old-time music 
think tank and and I was my mind was blown. I couldn't believe the the they had all these I got to play with Melvin Wine and I got to meet um, Wade Maynard who was, you know, 90 years old at that time. Um but I met a banjo player named Richie Stearns and I saw a band called The Renegades play and they told me all about about this band called the Horseflies that Richie had been in, and I learned about Ithaca. I'd never heard of Ithaca, New York. I I wasn't into Greek mythology, uh, and I and I didn't know that New York State was went that far west. I'd never been to the Finger Lakes, and I didn't care to. I was from the south, and I figured I'd go further south. Um, but through the twists and turns of my life, I ended up in, in living in the Finger Lakes. And what was so immediately apparent was that it was a place where the fiddle player was like the rock god. The fiddle player was the guy that everybody wanted to go home with. And and I couldn't believe that there was such a place left on this earth uh, because I, I grew up sort of like resistant to electric guitar. I mean, I loved it. Um, but at mm -hmm. the same time, I was like, I won't be swayed by that. It, to me, it was like too, um, it was too easy. I wanted mm -hmm. I wanted the fiddle and the banjo to be like the electric guitar. I I wanted to shape shift and have it be like the twenties and when you could actually get laid with one of these things. <laughs> well, in Ithaca, um, you could. Yeah. <laughs> so how how's move? How is your your you you know your have a big hit song, you know, writing Rag and Wheel and you're a great songwriter. How has it changed to all these years? You know, how, how have you emerged from, from writing, you know, very string band or focused kind of songs to, to where you are today? Um, I was listening to your, to do your most recent album and uh, the, the Mississippi flag song. And that reminded me of like a Randy Newman song a, a little bit almost. Um, but how, how is that all kind of, you know, What's how is that? How do you think it has changed? Uh, well, um, you know, I, the song you mentioned, I, I wrote that one on the banjo, um, and uh, I think that claw hammer banjo playing and also my up picking mountain two finger style of playing has a um, a has a um, a narrowing quality that or or the way I play the fiddle. I'm a self taught musician, so. Yeah. I like to think that I play every instrument like it's a banjo, like it's a claw hammer banjo. I, I'm I'm like a banjo player on harmonica. I'm like a claw hammer banjo player on guitar. You know, my fiddle playing is very informed by my claw hammer playing. So um, my songwriting is the same way. It's it's uh it's a it's what I it's what I've learned how to do based on what I listen to and what I know mm -hmm. about songwriting technique. You know, I learned a lot about songwriting from Gillian and David. Uh, they were hugely influential on me, um, and I learned a lot by listening to Bob Dylan. Uh, but I but but with Dave Rawlings and Gillian Welch, I could sit down with them um, and learn about songwriting technique. So that's there's a. That's a little bit of what's behind the curtain, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, what's really in front of it is old-time music is, it guides the way. I'm constantly writing a new tune based on a Lily Mae Ledford melody. You know, I'm, I'm constantly listening to 
the Carolina Tar Heels and Clarence Ashley and thinking, how can I update this? What would be a, what's a new way to sing about getting drunk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're and you're finding a new way. Each, you know. I mean, there's just you, you'll yeah. never run out of ways of singing about getting drunk. It's just it's that. Good. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're coming close to the end of time here, Jamie. I want to bring you in. Do you have any? Do you have any questions you want to ask? Nothing specific. I know we are at a hard stop today, but um, I did just throughout the, the course of the interview, you made a, a lot of references, uh, kind of showing your age a little bit to uh, Nirvana and Soundgarden and Kurt Cobain and stuff like that. And then when you describe the way you play and the way you approach the instruments, it's almost you bring a certain kind of grungy, punky ethos to stringed instrument music uh, in a way. And I, I think, you know, you look at the history of like punk music and they're famous for that kind of DIY self-taught going against the grain uh, type approach to, to making music. Is that a fair statement or is that? Totally. That's, yeah. ex- and, and you're, that's it, Jamie. That's, that's what my, my whole thing is, is that yeah. by the time, by the time 1993 rolled around, you couldn't be, it wasn't punk rock to play punk rock. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was punk rock to play fucking old time music. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like this was the most <laughs> punk rock statement that I was able to make. This was yeah. like such a fuck you to so many things. It's like I don't need a car. I don't need a gig. I don't need a website or a phone. I don't need a teacher. I don't need a record player. All, all I need is a street corner and an open case and one of these. And I and I'll sleep behind the joint and I'll eat what I kill. I mean, you know, I, it was such a great uh, opportunity to feel free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that was, that's kind of where I thought it was all going. And I wanted to kind of hear that from you. That was a great, great way of putting it. So thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, you're holding a good time Americana um, uh, for everyone who's curious, but I think if you have a couple more minutes, we'd love to hear you play it one more time before yeah. we head out today. You've got things to do and people to see and babies to shake and all that kind of stuff well every banjo player knows that when you turn it up into the modal tuning something happens you just feel like it's the conjuring sound so i just want to show you how to do it in case you don't know so you're in your regular tuning you're gonna you're about to play you know sandy river bell or you're gonna play orange blossom special just take that one and crank her up and it's just like the this the nectar of the gods oh yonder stands little maggie with a dram glass in her hand she's drinking away her trouble She's courting some other young man Oh, it's how could I ever stand it Just looking at them pretty blue eyes They're shining like pretty diamonds Like diamonds hanging in the sky Well, I'm going down to the station I'm gonna catch me the fastest moving 
and trained. I'm a going away for to leave you, Maggie, so you can hunt you some other man. I saw you, Maggie You were sitting on the banks of the sea With them whiskey bottles piled all around you And a banjo on your knees 